I'm always interested to talk to people who are non-CEO founders is that it's a really interesting position you're in because you are a founder and you're part of the DNA of the company, but you also, you're not running the company. You're running a big, you're running a functional area of the company. So for me, one of my challenges throughout the course of the company, um, especially toward the end, was how to balance being those two things, like the two parts of my role. Welcome to the Role Models Podcast, where I interview successful women about their life and career and what they've learned along their way. My name is David Noel, and my guest in this episode is Molly Chen. Molly is one of the three co-founders of Birchbox, and Birchbox is a service that gives people access to beauty products who are not experts in beauty products. The timing of this interview with Molly was really interesting. I met Molly in New York City in the first week after leaving SoundCloud after eight years with the company, and that was quite some emotional time for me. It turns out that Molly had recently left Birchbox after six years, and I was curious to hear if I could learn something from her experience. The difference between Molly and I was that she's an actual co-founder of the company, and in this episode, we explore not only what it's like to start and grow a company like Birchbox, but also what it's like to decide to leave the company that you co-founded. We talk about the many ups and downs of building a startup company with her friends from college, some of the mistakes she's made along the way and what she's learned from them, and she also shares some advice with people in startups or who are interested in joining a startup. We also talk about some of the lessons she's learned as an editor at Condé Nast Traveler, which, where she had her origin, and uh, what makes a good writer, editor, and marketer. If you would like to support the Role Models Podcast, here are a few ideas on how you can do that. Number one, you can become a patron on our new Patreon page and contribute with one, three, five, or ten dollars per episode and enable us to keep producing this podcast. Number two, you can go to iTunes, click subscribe, and write a really short review uh, to share what you think about this podcast and also click the five-star rating on iTunes. Or third, you can share the link to this episode and the podcast with your friends on social media. Whatever you do to support this podcast, my Role Models co-founder Isabel and I send you a virtual high five through this uh, audio recording and thank you for your support. This is the Role Models Podcast. My name is David. This is episode 17 and this is my guest, Molly Chen. Molly Chen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, I'm excited to be here. I am excited to have you on a podcast because we share a similar situation in which we are right now. You were the first employee and, found, and founder of Birchbox, a startup, a service that helps um, people access beauty products who are not experts in beauty products. And uh, you were there for six years and recently left. I was at SoundCloud for eight years. I was a seventh employee. And now you've got me beat. And, uh, and recently left as well. So we're in a similar state. And I'm curious to know, how does it feel to you right now? I mean, it feels complicated. We talked about this um, kind of offline. But I, when you leave a place that you've spent so, so many years building um, from scratch and you have so much of your self and your identity bound up in that company, it's 
obviously complicated. I mean, the best way I can explain is it's getting out of a long-term relationship where you like, deeply love the person, but it's just time to go your separate ways. So it's like conscious uncoupling. Um, but the, you know, I guess the more nuanced answer is that it was really hard to leave. Um, it was really painful to leave people that I love, to leave a job that I really had inhabited for so long, but I also knew it was the right thing. So there was, you know, it's been a journey to kind of, you know, in the kind of, in the real like cheesy journey sense, like there really has been a, I had to like deprogram a little bit after leaving. Um, and I'm still close to the business. I still love lots of people there, but it really is trying to like figure out what you want to do on your own. And so I'm probably, I'm almost a year out. I left last June. Um, it's May. And it's easier now, for sure. And I have a better sense of kind of what I want to do next, for sure. But I'm still getting there. Um, so it feels complicated, but it feels good. It was right. That it was the right decision to make. Yeah. We'll get back to it because there's a lot of talk about, about your time at Birchbox and helping leading the company grow and, uh, and uh, uh, develop that company. So we'll get back to that. But why don't you start with um, sharing a bit Uh, your background, where you grew up, uh, what, what your title was like, where, uh, mm -hmm. what influenced your uh, the person you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, who or what influenced that? Um, I grew up in Miami, Florida, which is a surprise to most people who know me because I don't um, telegraph a lot of Miami. Um, and I loved growing up in Miami. I grew up on the water. My family was um, very... We were just a water family. I grew up sailing, so I was on the water every single weekend. My sister and I swam. We sailed. We were kind of like, you know, little kid dolphins. Um, and it was a pretty incredible place to grow up. I will always say Miami is a great place to grow up. It's a great place to visit. It's a place that I didn't. I knew I didn't want to live. Um, so I left um, to go. I went to Harvard, so I was in Boston starting at age 18, and I've been in the Northeast ever since. But growing up, I had an incredible childhood because I had um, – you know, the normal kind of angst of being a teenager and stuff. But I had a really interesting out of school life, whereas we sailed almost every weekend and I was competitive sailing. So I had this kind of interesting other part of my life. But then I also went to a magnet school that was focused on it was actually focused on um, maritime and science technology, which also hasn't really impacted my career choices, but was a great place to be because basically all the kids that were there kind of raised their hands to be there. Um, and it was a small school and it was a really great education. So I was kind of like set up, I wouldn't say I would set up to conquer higher education by any means, but I always kind of knew I was, I wanted to get out of the state and go somewhere Northeast to kind of continue my education. Um, really close to my family. My dad's side of the family lives in Hawaii and I spent every summer there. And I would say that that's kind of the other part of my life that was pretty formative, just spending a lot of time with my grandparents every single summer. It's kind of where I developed my love of cooking from my grandmother. My grandfather was very exacting, so some of my like type A-ness comes from that. So I, it was a really, um, it was a nice way to grow up. And um, what was it like to leave Miami to uh, spend most of your life in the East Coast? Like what was the, the decision-making process of leaving Florida for oh it was like, there wasn't a process I just I just knew I always wanted to leave I mean and I, that's as simple as that I love the Northeast my mom's actually from Rhode Island my parents live in Maine now like you know Miami to Maine people always are like you know did they go the wrong direction um, but I love the Northeast it always you know when I got to Cambridge and saw all the buildings the red brick and kind of the neighborhoods like the idea of driving places and having to kind of be in your car and not have neighborhoods like that never really appealed to me so some of some of the northeast is just 
access to the people and types of industries that I love. And some of it is really like the scale of the cities and the way the cities are organized. Um, I mean, my husband and I just uh, moved into a place in Brooklyn this summer that will hopefully stay in kind of for the rest of our lives. So we're definitely here for a while. Here for a while. When we look at your career, um, there's two main arcs, right? There's the the arc of of media and um, editorial and the media industry. And then the second one would be more tech um, tech services. What... um. What do you think shaped that decision of going to media first and then tech later? Yeah. Um, talk a bit about your time of um, as a student and then deciding to be uh, in the media industry as a as a first foray. Yeah, I was talking to someone about this the other day and how kids and I really mean kids like nineteen year olds are definitely kids um, and I still think I'm a kid, but it's. When you graduate from college now, the kind of the number and type and variety of jobs that are available to you is fundamentally different than it was when I graduated from school. And that doesn't even count the fact that I was only aware of certain types of jobs. But, um, you know, I think kids these days, like, they know what a product manager is. They know what startups are. And that's not to say that those are the only jobs worth going after. But when I graduated, I mean, I'd spent I, – I worked on the paper in high school. You know, it was kind of a typical, like – I want to work in a magazine. Um, but then I did continue doing it in college and really did love creating content and not hard journalism. You know, I was really interested in, like, consumer content. Um, I wrote my senior thesis about content. I read my, – my thesis was basically I read old issues of gourmet and good housekeeping um, and lightly applied social theory to them. But it really was an excuse to, like, read a lot of magazines. And so by the time I graduated, I thought I wanted to be the editor-in-chief of gourmet. That was just the thing I wanted to do. And so I moved to New York, got a job at Condé Nast, um, and, you know, you don't get more kind of – Condé Nast, it, it just embodies a certain era in New York. You know, when I started in 2005, it was a line of black cars outside the uh, building. You know, there was incredibly opaque um, – in, in, opaque from a from – a, you know, you go in as a 22-year-old, you kind of don't understand how the business is run. Like, it's not – it's kind of the opposite of how we think of building our types of companies now, like startups where everything's transparent and there's a dashboard and all these things. Like, Condé wasn't like that. But at the same time, it was this incredible education for me in how to be an editor and how to develop those skills. And I would say, like, the skills I developed are the, the ones that have served me today, which are how to edit something, how to decide what words are worth it and what not worth it, what's worth someone's time and what's not worth someone's time, um, how to think of a package as a whole. And I think even when I was at Birchbox and building out a content team, I was looking for those people who had a combination of um, like future thinking and innovation, but a real respect for the true skills that it takes to create a really strong, I would say, brand now. But before, I would have just said content. What did you do to get that job? Um, <laughs> this is a really good example of why you should listen to your dad. So when I graduated, <clears throat> I didn't have a job. I moved to New York without a job. I was freaking out. I was working in like a clothing store. Um, I was sending my resume kind of to every open job um, that I could find. And eventually my dad said, Molly, you're being dumb. You should just meet with the old, the person you'd interned for last summer. I'd interned at Riverhead Books and I'd had a great time at that internship. But I like didn't want to bother the woman I'd interned for and she was busy. And my dad was like, you're, you sh are just being dumb. So I emailed her and we had coffee. And while we were talking, she dashed off a few emails um, to people in her network, one of whom was an editor at Traveler. And so the next day, I get this really cryptic email from Condé Nast Traveler, which I, where I would eventually work, that said, here's the edit test. 
and I didn't recognize the person who'd sent it. I hadn't applied to Traveler, so I had no idea where this was coming from. But I said, okay, I guess I'll do this. Um, and I, it wasn't until I showed up in the office for the interview that I realized that the woman who I'd met with had sent an email to her former assistant who happened to work at Traveler, who'd happened to give my name, and kind of all these things fit together. So that's how I got the job. What is the what is an editing test? An edit test. Edit um, test. I still use them today to vet um, to vet editors and copywriters. It's it's essentially what it should be is a series of assessments to determine. That are you? Can you do the type of work that we're hiring you to do? So for me, it was at that point in my life, it was edit a story, literally line edit a story. Um, I think it was critique an idea, or, or kind of a pitch from a writer, and then, you know, the third one probably would have been like look at something for detail, like find whether you can spot the mistakes or something like that. So how, it's a skills assessment. How can you practice that skill? It's hard. I mean, some of it is just being sharp eyed. Some of it is just having um, – so at, at Birchbox, what we would do is I would hire a lot of people to write things like product pages, which is you go to any beauty site and it's a product page for a moisturizer or for a shampoo or whatever. And so the people who are good editors are the ones who could say this is grammatically incorrect or the sentence structure could be a little more clear. <clears throat> but the people who are great were the ones who also – who did that but also took a step back and said – oh, this, um, this doesn't feel like this is the right tone of voice, or this feels like it could be talking about any shampoo. Like, how can we make this more ownable? Um, or this is a cliche, and, I'm, and I know that other magazines use it or other beauty sites use it, but we're not going to use it. So, like, it's, so it's, it's, you know, just do you have the taste level? Do you have can, the point of view? But then also do you have the hard skills? Can you actually, you know, edit for grammar and clarity? Yeah. You mentioned that editing skills um – require to know what somebody's uh, time is worth and what it's not. How do you determine that? Yeah, it's interesting because my, um, my feeling about that has really developed over the years because I think as an editor at a magazine or a traditional publication, you, you decide, right? You decide what's worth, what's cool, um, what's worth putting in front of the reader. I think now, and I would call myself... What I work on is brand and brand strategy, and what I love is customer-centric businesses. And the it changes. Um, so an example at Birchbox is that we would write about mascara, for example, and the way that Allure magazine would write about mascara would be the newest and best mascara. We're going to bring you the trends. We're going to bring you the inside scoop. For our customer, our customer had mascara in her home that we had sent her, that we had sampled to her. Or she was trying to, to figure out which mascara she wanted to buy. So we don't start from the standpoint of we're the editors. We're just going to bring you the newest, the best, the coolest. We're the editors as guides. We're going to help you navigate. And so I think part of being an editor is like deciding what information is valuable and useful to the customer. It's part of being a good marketer. What is useful in this headline? What is useful in this email? What is useful in this tweet? What is useful in this Instagram? And so now what I would say, what I talk to a lot of people about at brands, especially when they're creating <clears throat> whatever the, they're creating content that is what you know what you think of as content an article a video whatever or the, whether they're creating a lot of social content or whether they're creating a lot of emails you have to kind of answer the so what for the customer like you've got a new shampoo so what like tell me tell me why I should care and sometimes that so what is a great joke sometimes that so what is an offer sometimes that so what is this is right for you and we know this because and the brands who can kind of 
answer that and be really genuine about what they're really offering the customer, those are the brands that you're more likely to open their emails and click on their Instagrams. So you're a Condé Nast traveler. Your first job. What uh, what happens next? Um, so I was a Condé Nast traveler for five years, um, and it was a great experience. I got to travel a lot and had incredible editors there. And then in 2010, you know, by that point, I knew I wanted to go um, it sounds so silly now. I was like, I wanted to go digital. Um, but I truly, um, it was a big decision at that point, not in 2010, but you know, leading up to then, it was kind of a slow awakening to the fact that print was not what I wanted to do. Um, and so I was kind of searching around. Um, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was like firmly rooted in the New York startup scene. I knew a little bit about what was happening, but I was actually pitching myself to brands. I was pitching myself to Whole Foods, to consumer brands that I really liked. Pitching pitching as was at what? I said, you've got stories to tell, I can tell them. I was um, I was pitching myself as an editor. Um, and it's funny I would never use this word now, but I would said you need an editorial director. Um, now I don't I try not to use the word editorial because I think it's what people associate with print. I think content, while not the sexiest of words, is a more appropriate way to describe what we do. So I was pitching myself to brands um, and at the same time so I, I knew I wanted to leave. I'd had a great experience. I was ready to leave. Can, can we, before we move on, I mean, five years at Conan as Traveler, you traveled around the world. We have to talk about... <laughs> I travel around the, the U.S. Most, mostly. <laughs> okay. So in the U.S. or mostly in the U.S., in those five years, what is your prof- most profound experience um, of having been an editor for Conan as Traveler? Um, well, a couple things. I mean, it is... It's definitely the most glamorous job for a 23-year-old. Um, I definitely made zero dollars. So I had no money, but I got to stay in really nice resorts. I also got to you know, go to a lot of spa treatments and got taken out to dinner by many press people. The catch is that a couple things. Um, the trips you go on when you're that young are the ones that are really short because you're the only one who can go because you're single and you don't have any kids or any attachments. And so you can like go to XYZ place for 36 hours. Um, the sec thing, second thing is that you're often going the off season. So I was in the Caribbean during hurricane season, like more than one time. Um, and then the other thing is that when you go, you're often running around so much that, you know, what would typically happen is that you'd get to a place at, you know, 3 p.m. and you'd leave at 6 a.m. the next day. So that's not to say it wasn't incredible. I got to see a lot of places, but there's reasons why travel reporting is work. Um, so I always have to caveat that. But I got to do some pretty incredible things. Um, I, you know, I think I went to Mexico a lot because I speak Spanish. Um, and that was one of the places that was just, it's such a fun country to explore. Um, even, the, even the typical places. You know, I went to Acapulco for one of our stories in, in Cancun. And it was like, you know, trying to find the hidden things. To me, it always felt like a scavenger hunt. Um, but the one of the coolest things I did was that I, um, when I probably, it was maybe 20, 2008 or something, I was going through kind of a tough personal time. My grandfather had passed away. I was really close to him. And I just really needed to get out of town. And it just so happened that we were doing this project with the Bahamas. And so we put together this crazy itinerary. Um, it was 10 days long. And it was, I was on... I was on something like eight flights in 10 days or something like that. I went to like seven different islands and it was so, um, it was just a ridiculous amount of like schlepping from place to place, but it was also stunningly beautiful on island time. And and it was such a, like a 
abrupt departure from my normal life that it was a really help to like recalibrate me. And I did things like I stayed at a lot of places by myself on that trip, which I usually did, but these were places that you wouldn't normally be by yourself. So there was a kind of like self-test of like, how do you like, like I went to like a scuba resort by myself and I don't scuba dive and I was surrounded by couples and all these families and stuff. So like there's a lot of just like personal soul searching that happened on that trip. Um, I don't know. Actually, like so many of the trips that I went on were these wonderful 36 hours in places that you wouldn't go to. Like I wouldn't have gone to unless I had like a wedding or a friend who lived there. Like I was in Minneapolis in January. I fell in love with Minneapolis in January, which if you've ever been to Minneapolis in January, it is negative 20 degrees. Um, but it was such a wonderful city and amazing food. I did the same thing in Savannah. I was in the Finger Lakes. Like I was kind of like all over in all these like second cities. And I think that that was one of these incredible things. And so now whenever I have the chance to go to one of these second cities for um, a short amount of time, it's like you're always going to find incredible restaurants and people and interesting stores and people doing cool things. How do you find one of these unique gems in a place that you haven't been before? I mean, it's kind of a cop-out, but a copious amount of internet research. Um, and not the usual, you know, you're kind of like, now I would be digging through Instagram because this is what I still do when I go to places. I'm always kind of looking through and I have this like, I'll like follow the trail of someone who has a great picture and I'll try to figure out where else that person's been in the city. Um, some of it's asking, like just getting really comfortable talking to people and all types of people. Uh, if you go into a shop that it seems to be well, you know, has a really good selection of well merchandised things, like you're asking that person where you should get coffee. If you go to a great coffee shop, you're kind of like following the trail. But before I went, I mean, a lot of times when you land in a place, you've got like a couple like things that you can find and then you kind of tack on from there. I was recently on a trip where... One of my friends said uh, that the best way to find a good restaurant is go and ask the butcher. Yeah, that's a great idea. Follow the ingredients. I actually think that that's a really um, – I think it actually works really well in New York, too. If you figure out who's using, like, the great greens or the great thing, the, the flour that you like or something, you can kind of reverse engineer to the place you're trying yeah, to get follow to. Follow the ingredients. I like that. What is something – so you, um, after those five years, eventually decided to, do, uh, to leave. Mm-hmm. And I was curious about two things. One, what are some of the skills that you acquired during those five years that you carried over into your next phase? And then two, what was the decision-making like to leave the Con and Ast? Yeah. So when I left, um, just a quick, on how I get to Birchbox, um, my best friend from college, um, Haley, who'd actually been one of my roommates after college, she one of the most brilliant people I know. She was Haley's the co-founder of yeah, Birchbox. Yeah. So there's three, Haley, Katya, and myself. Um, and Haley and Katya were in business school together. Um, and Haley and Katya had um, been in a class and they were talking about businesses and they came up with this idea for Birchbox out of a couple different things. Katya had a kind of deep knowledge of the beauty space and what beauty brands had to do to market to customers and how inefficient those channels were. Haley, on the flip side, um, came from a consulting background, incredibly smart, like looks at problems from all angles. She also had this kind of insight into how beauty from the consumer side works because she had seen me be a beauty editor at Traveler. So I did handle a lot of beauty, just beauty-specific content. So I would go to beauty events. I would come home with all these products. None of them would end up in the magazines you know, for space, for advertising reasons, all these things. But instead, I would kind of have this like useful knowledge that I had nowhere to give it to. You know, I was coming home to Haley and I'd say, we just got this new bronzer from Chanel. Here's how you use it. Or you have your, your hair is very straight and like needs a little texture. Like here's this thing. I talked to the salon, the guy who owns the salon the other day. This is how you use it. Blah blah. So I was giving her this like back channel editorial um, insight, 
And so she and Katya talked about how how great would it be if you could put those two things together: samples that were kind of going underutilized, where were being underutilized, and information that was being um, inefficiently delivered to the customer. So they came up with that business idea. They called me, you know, uh, December 2009 or January 2010, and said, "Hey, what do you think?" And I said, "It's great. Please let me help." And they said, "Well, we need to test it first. So they did a beta in the spring of 2010 while they were still at HBS. And I helped with the beta while I was a traveler. I mean, at that point, I was pretty checked out and just ready, you know, really frustrated. I felt like I was, like, ramming my head against a wall for a little while and um, helped with the beta. And then as soon as they decided to – they, um, as soon as they decided to, to really pursue it full-time, which was probably the end of that, you know, right before they graduated, I quit my job and decided to join. And so you asked about the decision-making process. You know, I think it's hard. It was – it was – easy because I was 27 and I had no commitments and what was the worst that could happen and um, it was my best friend and I knew she was every you know every data point I had pointed to the fact that this was going to be I it wasn't I didn't join it thinking it was going to be a rocket ship like I didn't even know what a rocket ship looked like at that point like I don't think I could have told you what an IPO was like I didn't do well in economics <laughs> um, but I I knew it was a great idea I knew we could find an audience for it I knew I trusted these women and trusted their, not just trusted them kind of arbitrarily. Like I knew, I knew their strengths and their weaknesses, but I, I knew it was um, it was an incredible opportunity. And I think more than anything else, it just sounded like so much fun. It sounded like so much more interesting than what I was doing already. And so that was the kind of like long and short of it. I just, you know, part of it was not loving my where I currently was. And then the other part was that this other thing just seemed like such a huge, exciting adventure. What is something they did that made you trust them? Just the the whole experience of going through the beta and the decision-making process and, you know, not knowing all the answers, but kind of thinking about the things to test. Like, that was my first... Um, magazines are not connected to a customer. Like, I saw it in a couple of focus groups when I was a traveler, but we weren't... We didn't talk about customer like feedback. We didn't, you know, we weren't we were focused on the customer. We were creating something and we had a built-in subscriber base and it was just different. It was very one-sided. And this was the first time I'd really had the experience of talking about what does a customer need? Like how do we develop a product that they're going to love? We got this feedback on the beta. What are we going to do with it? So like even those types of things I just found so motivating. Um, and just seeing the energy and the kind of the not determination does only gets you so far it's like determination plus like knowing what you'd need to be determined about but like kind of the the ability to move things forward was really incredible to me now you mentioned that um so one of the reason or the part of the decision making process to join Birchbox was um or to start working with uh with the two other co-founders was to just follow your gut and to say hey what's the worst what can happen mm -hmm. so it sounds like more like a um like an experiment jumping in jumping straight in would you do six years later would you do the same thing again well i've been thinking a lot about it i mean there's starting a company is the hardest thing you can do and not always for it's hard for different people in different ways you know it's for me it was the hardest part was actually the once we got into it and we had employees and we had customers and we had things to do every day that was like that's a job 
the starting part, I think, actually is the hardest part for me. Like, it's the the kind of, like, crazy white space of what this could be and, like, how do you even test it and, like, how do you even, like, get through this? And you have – that's the part that where I think I would have the easiest time dropping off. Like, you know, you need so much momentum. And I think that that's why a lot of people have co-founders. It's, like, doing it on your own is – you have to have kind of an incredible will to, um, to get things moving forward. Um, so would I do it again? Um, I absolutely would do it again, but it's it was the same – I'm not looking to start something to start something. I wasn't, um, I don't think I'm, you know, I think you hear about um, serial entrepreneurs and people just who kind of like feed off of that. And that's definitely not what I feel, but I am hooked on this, on the feeling you get and the satisfaction and the kind of um, the, like the gratifying um, element of startups is like you, you see the problem, you fix the problem or you, you know, bring the group together to fix the problem. Like, you're in charge of your own destiny in a lot of ways and you can have so much impact. And I think one of the reasons I left Birchbox is that I started to feel like my impact was diminished by just the kind of where the company was and what my role had become. And so for me, like not having that kind of impact, I don't know that that would, I would be able to do that. Um, That said, like I'm in a different place in my life right now and joining like an early stage company that isn't like, you know, pre pre idea is maybe a little more appealing. So you now you're at Birchbox and you're three co-founders. What is the what is the first year or the first six months look like? Oh my gosh, a blur. There's such a blur. Um, the um, the first six months. So we started building the product in July of 2010. We launched in September of 2010, which felt like an eternity, but it's actually such a short amount of time. Um, that was the part that was the hardest for me. It was this idea of, um, or it was the feeling of having having the brick in your hand putting the brick down, standing on the brick, and then putting the next brick down. And like, kind of like that, the path kind of having to unveil itself, um, reveal itself as you're walking on it. And it was just, it was such a crazy time in that, in that part of the, you know, part of like building pre-customer. Once we had the boxes out in the world, you know, we had, we launched with 600 customers. Our goal was a thousand. So it wasn't like we had a wait list the first month, but By the second month, we'd actually had this incredible, um, we had a YouTuber who had found us and kind of shot our acquisition through the roof. So we had a wait list and everything kind of like took off from there. So we like found product market fit very early. Sorry to interrupt, but um, for people who are not aware of Birchbox, like, can you describe <laughs> very briefly what it's, uh, what, what it's yes. about? Yes. Well, I thought you, you did a pretty good job. Okay. So the problem we're solving is that it's really, um, it's hard to find and try, find beauty products that work for you. It's just hard. Um, some women love going to Sephora or love testing new products. Um, and those people are beauty lovers and that that's great. And they have plenty of places where they can go find products. I mean, you can go to Sephora, there's plenty of boutiques, things like that. For the for the kind of like beauty majority, as we like to call her, someone who is discerning, who's looking for products that work for her, but who really isn't interested in like researching to death or going into these stores every day. It's really hard. You do a lot of, try, you know, buying things and regretting them or like going on, you know, the the advice of a magazine or the advice of a friend and kind of not having like the great, the right information. And so what Birchbox solves is that problem um, for the customer. For beauty brands, what it solves is that it's really hard to get your beauty samples in the hands of the right customer. And so the way we solved it is that we combined a subscription service with e-commerce. So for $10 a month, you subscribe to Birchbox and you get a box filled with high-end beauty samples that have been picked to match your profile. And your profile is a mix of What's my skin like? What's my hair like? Um, what's my style like? 
you know, where am I, what, what's my kind of loose demographic? So my mom will get different things than I'll get. And then once you get them, the, the important part of the value proposition where I came in um, was let's explain how to use them. And so we start explaining how to use them from the card in the box that explains a little bit about the product. And that extends to the product, card, uh, the product page on the site, videos, articles, things like that. And then we sell all the products and give you a reward for buying them so that you end up being really incentivized to create a long-term relationship with us. What was the, what was the reward? Um, 10% back. 10% back, okay. <laughs> in points. And um, so you, you launch, uh, so that this is established in the beta phase, and then you, you, uh, you acquire first customers, and uh, it feels still more like a project, and you're testing it and seeing how it evolves. At what point did you know that it was actually turning into become a company and not just you know, a startup a start, start project? I mean, first customers and first employees, for sure. I mean, we, when the boxes went out into the world, it felt like a company. Like, we had customers, we had customer service, we had happy customers, we had sad customers, um, we had dollars. Um, that was when it started to click for me, because all of a sudden I had an audience where, you know, I had an audience of customers who I was talking to, um, both literally talking to on Facebook and Twitter and all these things, but also creating the box for them. And so that, to me, was really powerful. And then hiring a team is a different kind of um, building. It's the, now we have to show up for them. Now we're building this for them. Now our responsibility is to create a company that continues to thrive for our employees and for our customers. Did you manage people before? No, just interns. <laughs> Talk a bit about becoming a manager. What was that transition like or evolution like? Oh, my gosh. I wish someone had told me that becoming a manager was a thing you had to learn how to do. It is the hardest thing to do. Um you know, I still think of the people who came into Birchbox, like smart young people who really just wanted to manage people to, because it felt like a step up. And that's just not the case. Um, managing people is extremely challenging. So I got really lucky. One of the first people I hired is still at Birchbox. Her name is Lorelai. She's fabulously talented. And I accidentally hired her. I sat in a coffee shop with her and talked about what we needed at the company and kind of like an informational capacity. And at the end of the coffee, I'd accidentally hired her and I had to go back to the office and tell Katya and Haley. And we had like, you know, I think we had one or two employees at that Wait, point. Wait, what, what, what were you to do in order to, to be an accident? I just wasn't, I don't think I was authorized to hire her at the time. <laughs> and I just really liked her and she was so smart. And I was like, I could really use some help. <laughs> um, so learning how to be a manager um, was a real multi-step evolution for me. Um, I had on the job training and actually doing it, um, we had some incredible, um, we had an incredible HR people and culture team that d eventually developed really great programming for us to learn how to be managers. I learned through mistakes. Um, I would say my, my personal style is to be much more of, of um, someone, Katya actually told me this once, she's like, you're more of a mom than a coach. And you know, being a mom is great. I love bringing people donuts and giving them hugs and giving them positive feedback. But um, when it came time to do the critical stuff, I really struggled. And um, my team suffered, actually, so a couple times because of it. So for me, it was like, you know, making those mistakes um, helped me learn. Um, like reading, like reading dorky business articles and books really helped me learn. And also understanding that it wasn't something that I had to like wake up knowing how to do was a relief and also made me understand that it was something I could I train myself to do. You mentioned an interesting point that I want to go back to, um, that people sometimes think that becoming a manager is a step up in the mm -hmm. career. 
Um, and I had the same experience at SoundCloud as well. And I'm curious to know, for people who think that this is, people are listening to this now, um, and who think that this is a step up, what do you tell them? I mean, I think, you know, the truth is, like, managing is is a way to, you know, kind of extend your skill set and become more senior in a way um, and take on more, more responsibility. But I don't think it's the way that people think it is. I think people often think, okay, I'll put some of my job on this younger person or this, you know, this person I'm managing, and then I'll take on more things. And the truth is when you manage someone, you're actually taking on more things by managing them because part of your job is now to manage this person and their success in the sense that like are they adding value are they doing the job that you hired them to do is is now directly related to like how much work you put into their your relationship so you know i think it's just like understanding why you think you want to manage someone i don't i think it's a good experience for people to have and it often is necessary for you to be able to take on bigger projects but i think it always has to be balanced by the fact that you're now you know it's like you are now the caretaker of this relationship and this younger person's development path I keep saying younger. It doesn't have to be younger, but you know what I mean. Well, and from your view and experience, what makes a great manager? That's. I mean, I've had some. I've seen and had great managers who are different. I think um, listening is really important. Being honest is really important. Um, being being able to help the person see the forest for the trees is really important. I think a lot of times we get stuck in our kind of day-to-day and it's hard for us to connect the dots between our, you know, the things we're striving to push forward and the things other people are striving to push forward. So some of it is just like clear information delivery. Um, But yeah, I mean, honesty, (laughs) honesty is a big one. And, And like empathy, I would say you can't, to be brutally honest without empathy is really, that's a pretty big turn off. How do you put honesty into practice like into practical into the real world management what is an example for being honest as a manager honest about when something isn't good enough honest about when the role isn't right honest about when someone's spending their time on something that isn't as valuable maybe it's a i mean i saw this happen a lot at birchbox we had people who are so passionate about things um and sometimes it just wasn't a business priority and you don't want to hear that when you've finished creating whatever it is you're passionate about. You know, you want to hear it at the beginning before you've gone down that road. So I think honesty in that sense. Um, honesty about someone's abilities. Like we constantly, you know, when you work at a company where you love each other, like you, you know, we like had such a culture of mutual respect and appreciation and love at Birchbox. That also means it's really hard to tell people when they're not doing a good job or when it's hard to even see that people are not the right person for the role because you like that person so much. You know how much they care about the company. If they're not right for the role, they're not right for the role. How do you um, describe for people out there who are maybe interested in joining or transitioning into the tech industry um, in a fast-growing company, what is the best way to add value? It's a great question. Um, I mean, the... It's pretty simple, like helping helping solve problems is really what, you know, being proactive about solving problems. Um, also, just like the other thing I would say is like listening. If you're already in the door, for example, like just listening and, and, and soaking things up rather than coming in with new ideas. I mean, this is something that I think if you're, you're joining a startup, you obviously have a lot of ideas and a lot of energy. And I think sometimes it can be hard to balance that with what's the work that needs to be done at hand. So 
or what's the you know what it, what is the most pressing fire. So I think being you know being a problem solver, but also being willing to kind of like get out of the way and and see what what's the thing that just needs to has to get done today, not not the new big idea that needs to come down the track. What are some of the mistakes that you've seen people do in the um, in your time at Birchbox, maybe in the early days, or maybe mistakes you've done yourself, and what have you learned from it? You know, I think there's. I'll take this one as something I do, and I think everyone at at a fast growing company is probably um, in danger of. It's like not being able to say no, and I think that can mean a lot of things. Um, for us, it was everything from taking on partnerships that we shouldn't have taken on to taking on projects we shouldn't have taken on. Too many initiatives, um, you know, letting ourselves get distracted. So I think that that is just it. Just happens if you're. If you're at a company that's doing well and if you have a lot of momentum and or if you have a lot of people on staff who have a lot of energy, you're going to have way too many things in front of you and, and you need to be really, um, really disciplined about saying no. So I think that that's one big one. I mean, me myself, it's just like I think it's really hard to keep up with how the changing needs of the company, how you know, how to how to write align the needs of the company with what your team is doing. And I think that is really hard because you're constantly trying to keep this group of people going in the right direction. But at a certain point, that direction might not be the company, the, the one the company needs. And so you have to be so adept at kind of shifting them back toward the course. Um, I mean, I did this with, we had a content team that was, I mean, we at one point we were huge. We were 25 people or something with video and content and marketing copy and all these things. And we were kind of like, you know, you've got 25 people like running down the road to create all this content. And then at a certain point, I looked up and I thought, oh, shoot, we're creating all this stuff that isn't quite aligned with like what we need to be creating for our customer. And like, how do I pull it back? How do I pull it back? So I think that that, that maybe the advice there is just like as as a manager or someone who's an executive level, you just have to constantly be like course correcting and constantly like saying, is this the right thing for the business, not just the right thing for what I told people to do two months ago? And I think the flip side of that is that you don't want to give people whiplash. What do you think? Um, so you have an interesting, uh, uh, you know, the two arcs of your career that we that we um, elaborated on. One being deep in the content world, editorial, media world, and now in the in the tech world. What are some of the foundational skills that? Um, you think are most important for people early in their career to develop early on, which then can be transported into other other sectors, other industries? Mm-hmm. I mean, the again, maybe problem solving isn't a skill, but but the willingness to kind of, I think, if you want to be successful at a call it a startup or anywhere really you have to be adaptable and so you can't go in with like a preconceived notion of what you think you're going to be doing or the problems you think you're going to be solving or the answers you think you have so I think being able to absorb information and kind of like sift through it and be really strategic like strategic is probably the word that came up the most in as when I did um reviews for people every year including myself like strategic be more strategic be more strategic what does it mean that's like the easiest thing is to execute you know so strategic is like choosing the right thing to execute or choosing the right amount of effort to put into something. Um, so I think I think um, trying to avoid letting any, you know, an overload of energy and ambition to kind of like let you, you know, that can kind of push you forward blindly. And so to be able to pick your head up, I mean, skill-wise, 
the skills that served me were is this is this content good content and that is specific to what I do for other people I mean I think you can go really far with like we we hired a lot of people who are kind of like former consultants former analysts former things like people who just had problem solving you keep going back to problem solving but you know they knew how to look a pro- look at a problem and figure out like an entry point to that problem so like it changes across what roles you're looking for I mean things a lot of like the basic skills are you, you you can't just go in and just be a generally smart person. You have to have be able to like create a plan, and so it, it, that kind of doesn't change whether you're an editor or whether you're someone going and trying to be a marketing manager. What would you say was the biggest challenge for you? And you can choose maybe from a perspective of the company or maybe you personally. The biggest challenge you had to overcome during your time at Birchbox. My gosh, I thought about this last night when you sent me the questions. Now I can't remember. I mean, I had so many challenges. I mean, we were we were such a lucky. I don't want we're lucky in every way. You know, we lucky because we had too much demand at one point, not enough supply, and, and then we had the vice versa. It's like we swung between those poles. Um, what was my biggest challenge? I mean, for me personally, and. Forgive me if this is like a little too specific to me, but for me, like having one of the reasons I'm always interested to talk to people who are non-CEO founders is that it's a really interesting position you're in because you are a founder and you're part of the DNA of the company, but you also, you're not running the company. You're running a big, you're running a functional area of the company. So for me, one of my challenges throughout the course of the company, um, especially toward the end, was how to balance being those two things, like the two parts of my role. And so actually when I left, um, I'm sorry to make this about me, but I think it is worth mentioning is like there's there's the role you play in running teams, and that's often the easiest part to kind of figure out. It's like, do I want to manage these people? Do I want to do this job? And then there's the kind of role you play in the kind of building of the company, and that's a lot more that's a lot more in the kind of soul-searching sense. Um, so I had built the brand there, and I had to kind of think about Am I ready to step away from this? Um, so I think maybe just to give like a little more universal advice, I think one of the biggest challenges we had was transitioning at many stages, and this is not like unique to Birchbox at all, but transitioning between the different stages of our business and how we grew up. So going from a really early stage startup, so like five people in a room, 1,000 customers, to 50 people in a room, to 150 people, um, some people measure those marks by dollars some people measure them by people but these truly step changes like make you really question your identity and so in the same way that I grew up at Birchbox and I grew up personally and grew up at CareerWise um, we grew up as a company and I think at each one of those stages we had to like, we really struggled with how do we keep um, how do we keep our cultural DNA intact how do we keep our commitment to the, cu- the um, customers intact how do we make sure we are headed on the right path is the path toward profitability is it toward hyper growth like so I think that's just like that is the challenge that faces startups is how do you kind of stay true to yourself as you hit these like important milestones. You touched on an interesting point, which is the difference between your role and responsibility as a functional leader and as a co-founder. And that's uh, in both of these uh, different roles and responsibilities, they change over the, the course of the, the company Talk a bit about, I think it's it's clear to understand, it's it's easy to understand more on the functional side, so I want to I focus a bit on the co-founder side, and you, you, you touched on it a bit around 
culture DNA, um, or, um, orientation around the customer and things like that. For listeners who are out there, maybe in a similar position of being a co-founder and um, leading a startup to becoming an established company, um, or maybe people who want to become a co-founder and who have to transition from this idea of doing doing the things yourself mm-hmm. and you know, where you, you receive an attachment to these things that you do. Mm-hmm. And what is your advice that you have to that for them to detach from what they need to do and to orient themselves or uh, focus on determining what they need to do as a co-founder? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's unique to being a co-founder. I think you can probably expand it to just someone. I mean, I know that you were really early at SoundCloud. I think it's it's... It's the people there's there's a different feeling and a different connection to the company and the business when you're there at the beginning. And what I would call the beginning is when you can all sit in one room and hear hear everything everyone's working on. And the reason why that's relevant is because you just even if you weren't trying, you would understand more about the business. You would just understand how things worked. You would understand why the boxes were late or why, you know, why it's challenging to get insurance on something or why X, Y, Z. And that changes as a company builds and and grows up. And so I see it with early employees at Birchbox where they they have to in their you know in their regular roles they learn how to do their job they graduate they get new skills but then as a member of the kind of early cohort of the company they have to figure out how to pass on that company DNA um, the like the brain of the company um, and so. At a place like Birchbox, it's how you think. It's like how you treat your, your people around you. It's how you solve problems. It's how you put the customer first. And so what I would always tell people to do um, when they were in those, you know, people who are kind of call it like employees like 1 through 15 or whatever, like 1 through 10, um, they just have to teach people to think the way that they think um, and what questions they would ask. And like it's not about – it is kind of about creation story of the company and like why we started and like mission and all those things. But it's just like fundamentally like how we do things, um, and I think that's really important. But I think that um, there's um, there is a lot of letting go that happens as some place as places grow up. And I think for me, I, it happened in stages. And I think you get used to not knowing every single person in the room, um, and you can you can be okay with that as long as the company is still the company you joined, in, and it's still that way for the you know it's still doing things for the right reasons. Um, and I do feel that way about Birchbox, and I feel that way because we've we've done a good job passing on the kind of the ethos and the way and the kind of approach. At some point, um, you start thinking about leaving, or talk a little bit about that evolution. Where was this a moment that happened? Was it a process? When did that process start? How did you work through it? Why did you leave? You mm-hmm. wrote a blog post about it, which is great. It's out there. People will link it, link to it in the in the show notes. But um, talk a bit about that. Yeah. Um, the thing with leaving is that it was kind of like a. It was this thing that I didn't think I could do. Um, you know, I loved the company so much. I loved everyone. I felt so committed to our customers. You know, <laughs> some days I was like, well, "How could I possibly leave this place?" Um, but the truth is that that there were just aspects of my job that weren't they weren't fulfilling to me as fulfilling to me anymore, and they weren't I wasn't adding as much value as I want, once added. And so, not to get too granular, but when a company gets to a, a certain size and, and is in a certain place, and with Birchbox we were 
really focused on profitability and operating and just like make it run as efficiently and awesomely as possible. When you have someone like me, I'm a brand person and I'd built the brand voice and I'd built the brand experience and I'd trained people and I had people who are great people running the the parts of the business that I had once run and I was still adding value but it was just different it was like it was kind of felt like it wasn't um I wasn't just learning as much as I had been and so that is just such a melancholy feeling it's just not that's not for someone who joins a startup like the feeling of not learning is probably the worst thing you can do to a person um, and so all the love in the world was not helping. Um, and so the answer is that I circled around, I circled around this feeling and I kept trying to I kind of poked at it. And I said, well, I'll take on this project or this will change things or this new initiative or whatever. And it just didn't change. And um, it really was one day I just woke up. I didn't wake up. I had a really honest conversation with um, a friend of mine at Birchbox who, um, who just said, you know, I don't think you want this role anymore. And like, so she had like said that thing to me in other versions, like other times, but for whatever reason, that time kind of like broke me and I just started crying, crying, crying. And it was the most cathartic day because I just knew it wasn't right anymore. And I like went home and I talked to my dad and I said, I can't leave. And he said, you can. And I said, I have a mortgage. And he said, you can. And so, you know, also just like other people around me saying, it's okay. Like you're the one fighting for this. The company will be okay you're unhappy. Yeah, that's a good that's a good um it's a good time maybe to talk a little bit about the importance of uh, uh, I call them advisors, mm-hmm. right? Like mentors or whatever you want. I thought you were going to say how scary mortgages are because those are also scary. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely sounds scary. Yeah. <laughs> um and uh and so I think so. So I, I can relate to that, right? Whatever, and exactly what you describe, I can exactly relate to that. And I think there's many people out there who've who've been with companies for a longer time, especially the high growth, fast paced companies who who go through similar emotions. And I think what happened in my case, and and maybe in your case as well, is that you 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 the voices in your head become the the main driver for mm-hmm. things, right? So you you really start to think about, but. My identity is connected to that. This is who I am. This is the, this is the longest I've ever been with something. Um, this is how I'm recognized in the world. This is what people associate me uh, with. This is what people introduce me uh, with when they when they introduce me to people. They say, "Hey, this is David from SoundCloud." This is suddenly there's a there's a there's a there's the um, the idea that this will be removed at some point if mm-hmm. you if you leave. So. What is the importance of having people around you to help maybe overshadow those voices in your head? And how do you go and what kind of questions do you ask them? Or now looking back, ask differently. If you look back and would have to do it again, what would be the questions you would ask people who you seek advice from to help you um, remove this like haze in your head? I think it's hard because I do think I had to come to the decision on my own, Um, you know, because I'd gotten that advice from people not, you know, it wasn't like everyone around me was like, you need to leave, you need to leave. But, you know, people who I trusted, um, who was very close to, who loved the company as much as I do. I mean, I half the reason that, you know, more than half the reason leaving it was so hard was like just looking around thinking, I love all these people. We built this thing together. How could I possibly walk away? And um, but I think. 
I think knowing who you can have those conversations with. So like that's a probably a pretty small group of people. You're not asking everyone what their advice is. You're asking the people who you truly trust and you trust them in different ways. Maybe, you know, you trust them because they, they've, they've seen you on this career arc and they know how you've grown or not grown. You trust them because they're your, you know, parents are pretty biased, but like it's sometimes nice to have a biased opinion. Someone, my mom actually was the one who told me to leave Traveler when I was unhappy before I had the Birchbox job. She said, you're unhappy, you should leave. Um, so like there's there's the kind of like emotional, like someone can just see what's good for you and what's not good for you. And then there's people who have kind of seen you progress along your career. So I think you need both those things. You need the kind of like pragmatic, you've gotten the skills that you are going to get. Yes, you will get another job. You, this is not burning bridges. You'll be fine. And then you need the kind of emotional it's okay. Like, it's okay. Talk a bit about the decision to leave and executing on a decision. Oh, I mean, I left really fast. I decided and then I told um, Katya, who's the CEO, I told her the next day and she understood and I left a week and a half later. Like, I just didn't, you know, I had the luxury of knowing that the, the teams were set up to, you know, continue moving along and things would be fine and I was going to, you know, I was going to be around. I, I stayed on as an advisor. I'm still connected I mean, I still talk to many people at the company very frequently, um, but I didn't want to stay because I'd just seen how hard it was for people, for both the people in the company and the people outside of the company to kind of have someone hanging around. Um, in a way, you just want to like break it off pretty fast. You wrote another Medium post on the importance of taking time off. Mm -hmm. So after you left, um, you had a lot of time mm -hmm. off. <laughs> What was that like? I took, um, so I left at the end of June and I gave myself two pretty solid months like off. And I actually, it was pretty arbitrary. I would say one thing about taking time off when you, when you are kind of a, someone who's used to running, um, running at a single speed, um, you know, really fast every day is that you then wake up and you're like, oh my God, I have to figure out what, what I'm going to do now. And so you can over engineer your time off. Um, I think time off is really important. Um, I had a lot of advice from Haley, who had left Birchbox before me. She, um, she's a VC now, but she'd really done a lot of thinking about how to. I'm going to use the word optimize because I really like you know it's like the idea of like how can I find the balance between white space, um, but also giving myself some kind of structure so I don't go crazy. So I took the summer off, which was obviously a very nice time to take off. Um, I gave myself, you know, I I put some. I put some structure on my time off. Um, I kind of thought of it in different ways. I thought about what are the things that I haven't had the time to do over the last six years? Um, either projects I haven't been able to do, things I haven't been able to like keep in my mind, like feelings I haven't been able to have. Like I wanted to, one of the things I kept coming back to is like, I, I keep saying deprogramming now, but like it wasn't, I was basically clearing my head. I, need, I wanted to be more grounded. I wanted to be more, I wanted to be more me. I wanted to be like Molly, just me not Molly as a Birchbox, Molly, who's kind of involved with this thing. I just wanted to kind of figure out what was important to me. And so for me, that was just like, I started with making a lot of lists. Like, what are these things? What are important to me? What are the things that I wish I wanted, could explore? Let me like go and figure out how to do them. And they ended up being pretty, like pretty prosaic. Like I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of yoga. Um, I learned how to garden. Um, I spent more time with my family. Um, you know, for the first time I was able to go to them instead of them always coming to me. Um, I also... You know, in, in this time, I wasn't taking any work meetings, but I also wanted to think about what was important to me. And 
So one of the reasons that I wrote those blog posts for Medium was that I, I just think better when I write. And it was important for me to kind of be able to articulate what I was feeling because what I was feeling was a lot of angst. You know, it was really, it was hard. It was not like sitting on my couch eating bonbons because, you know, it's getting out of a long-term relationship and kind of recalibrating and thinking about who you are now and what you want. So I did a lot of, so the writing really helped me with that. And then I kind of transitioned out of time off into um, real life in a pretty slow way by starting to just talk to people who were smart. And that was like, that was my re-entry into the world was like just starting to talk to the smartest people I know, which was much easier than kind of going out and putting myself on the job block automatically. What would you say um, to people who are stuck? So I've had recently an experience with somebody who deeply unhappy uh, in their job and have a few loose ideas for um, what would make them happy. And the way I read the situation was that the person was really struggling to make a call and to, to make the jump. You made the jump. What do you tell people who are maybe stuck in their career or stuck in making a big decision like that and opting for something that will make them happier? I make a lot of lists. Um, I think, I mean, every situation is different. I mean, where you are financially, what kind of support system you have. But I think ultimately you have to think about what am I scared of? What are the things that motivate me? I mean, I guess just to like, truly I make a lot of lists. So like, you know, I think about, I would think about what do I find motivating? Like, what do I get up and want to do every day? What are the things I like about my current role? And what are the things I don't like about my current role? What could I be getting at this new thing? What are the pros and cons? Like, however you want to get to a decision, but I would actually like make yourself articulate it. Cause I don't think we're as honest. We're, we're not honest with ourselves. Like I'm not honest with myself when something's hard. And I think saying it out loud is, is the hardest thing you can do. So figuring out a way to say it out loud is really important. Um, and then you know, sometimes it's just ripping off the Band-Aid and, and figuring out what you need to do that. Like, do you need someone else to tell you to do it? Do you need to create a budget for yourself and figure out, could I be unemployed for three months? Like, what what are the kind of factors that you need to be able to order, like, check that box? This is the Role Models podcast. Who's your role model? Another one that I, I looked at that question, and I was like, I don't have a single role model. Um I'm going to give you a cop-out that's not a cop-out. I have been super um, incredibly lucky to work with um, incredible people, um, specifically a lot of incredible women. Um, I also, what I've realized kind of as I've gotten older is that I have role models in different aspects of my life um, right now. So I'm having a baby in less than two months, um, and I have role models for being parents and I have people I look up to because of the way that they've been able to structure the relationships with their partners and with their, um, you know, how they are parenting. Um, Haley is, has been one of my best friends. Um, Haley Barna, she is incredible and watching, watching someone you've known since 18, someone you've known as kind of a child and someone who you think of, um, and who really enjoys a person, but then seeing them run a business is a very, it's gratifying in so many ways because you're so proud of them, but you're also so amazed and you learn about this person in a different way. So like, I would say that she's um, someone who's incredible. I also just you know grew up with an incredibly loving and smart number of people in my life. My grandmother, my parents, um, my sister. Um, so easy, surrounded by role models. Yeah. 
What is the best advice you received from your mother or grandmother? Hmm. My grandmother taught me to love food. So that was really it. Um, I don't know. My mom, you know, we I didn't talk about this when I was telling you all about growing up in Miami. But my parents had, my dad worked at home. He's an architect and he worked out of home. My mom went to an office every day and she wanted to go to an office every day. She was an art director at a magazine. And whether I like, thought about it or not at the time, I, that was a really interesting way to grow up with having um, a father who got up at 3 a.m. every day, took us to school, was done by 3 p.m. every day. He got up at 3 a.m. so he could work before he took us to school, You know, pick us up, hung out with us in the afternoon, made dinner, um, and... You know, then my mom was the one who was kind of on a more traditional corporate schedule, and that was what she wanted to do. And so, um, the the advice was not as vice as much was just like the kind of determination to like fit your life and your job. And and if that the job is what you want, like you figure out a way to do it. And she was an incredible mom. It wasn't that she like gave up anything to do it. She just figured out a situation where she could have both. So I think that I don't know. I've never thought that I couldn't have both. Yeah. Uh, we ask this question every every guest on the podcast and also in the uh, during the event series that we have in Berlin. And uh, the question is, what would you give? What what piece of advice would you give your fourteen year old self? Hmm, I was such a brat. I was a normal fourteen year old. <laughs> um, you know, I think it was interesting. I was talking to um, a kid who goes to my high school, like a 16-year-old, and it was funny. I felt so old. Um, but I was talking to someone from my high school recently, and he was asking the same thing um, because he works on the magazine for them. And I said, there's a real value in having plans. Like if you're a ambitious 14-year-old and you know you want to do X, Y, Z, it's, it's great. That's great to have a plan. And I think it's probably you know more refreshing to know a 14-year-old who says they want to be the president of the United States than to not. But I think also um, a willingness to just be curious about the things outside of that plan. So I knew what I wanted to, like, quote unquote, knew what I wanted to do. But I think I had a little bit of a tunnel vision um, in the way that I thought about academics and college and stuff like that. And so just like being willing to be open minded and exploring outside of um, outside of what you think your plan is. I mean, and the other thing is just like, you know. You're just it's your 14 it's like it's not that big of a deal be nice to your sister have fun have fun what is uh the thing you're most excited about right now or in the next few months i mean it's crazy to think i'm gonna have a baby um that's a big thing um and it's funny i've actually been able to i'm also after having almost a year away from Birchbox, i do i don't feel ready for the next thing in the sense that i know exactly what i want to do but I do feel different and I feel ready to kind of evaluate things in it from a kind of a different vantage point. Um, so I'm excited to have a baby. I'm excited to take a few months and learn how to you know, operate my tiny human. And then I'm excited to come back and figure out what the idea is that's going to keep me up at night or the team is that I want to spend a lot of time with. Um, but I'm also trying to be comfortable with the fact that no matter what plans I make, they're not going to be the ones that actually happen. So a little being okay with the unknown. Molly, all the best to you and to the baby. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks to Molly Chen for sharing her story and for being our guest on the Role Models podcast. 
Big thank you also to you for listening. And if you liked this episode, then maybe you will like some of the previous guests we've had on the show. For example, Recode's Kara Swisher or advertising executive turned entrepreneur Cindy Gallup or venture capitalist Megan Quinn, who spent over 10 years building products at Google and Square before becoming an investor herself and investing in companies that built products. If you would like to support us, you can do this by going to iTunes and posting a short review about what you think about the podcast and also hit the five-star rating. You can also contribute on patreon.com slash role models and uh, contribute with one, three, five, or $10 per episode. And this enables us to keep producing this podcast in the future. We also love feedback. So if you have something you want to share with us, do not hesitate to send us an email to hi at rolemodels.co or to post a quick tweet um, and find us on Twitter. We're at Role Models and I am at David. Until next time, be well and thank you for listening.